We would like to welcome our listeners to the podcast series, Who's Universal, which we will be hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference, taking place on the 5th and 6th of March 2021, presumably, at Haus der Kulturen der Welt. The White West Conference series is organized by Anna Teixeira Pinto and Kader Atia, and the edition at Haus der Kulturen der Welt um, upcoming in March is co-organized by myself. My name is Anselm Franke, and I'm head of exhibition programs here at HKW. Our guest today is Dirk Moses. Dirk Moses is Frank Porter Graham Distinguished Professor of Global Human Rights History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He has written extensively about genocide, memory, and global history. Among his publications are German Intellectuals and the Nazi Past from 2007. And his latest book, The Problems of Genocide, Permanent Security and the Language of Transgression, is currently in press with Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Dirk Moses. Great to be with you. I would like to start with a concept that I've read in your writings um, many years ago already, which I think will uh, you know, serve us to contextualize and position also our conversation within um, the series of podcasts so far, which is the concept of the racial century. Um, in the discussion we've had with Donna Jones yesterday, we were like circling around this whole like late 19th century, early 20th century rise of fascism period quite a bit and how this period has been and can be remembered in the paradigms of the post-war order or what what was perhaps also foreclosed in the memory that the post the, the memory regime that the post-war order um, had sort of installed so um, perhaps you could introduce this concept of the racial century um, to us uh, to, uh, to start with Sure. So that comes from an article that I wrote, I think, in 2001 or so, and uh, was written and conceptualized, at least in the late 90s, you know, early 2000s. This was a bit of a you know, lead time. And the idea was, among others, that the 1850s to the 1950s represented a, a coherent period in which biological racial thinking framed uh, the imaginary of politics uh, domestically and internationally of course at the end of the well in the in the late 1940s and early 50s you had the so-called human rights revolution you know the genocide convention refugee convention the geneva conventions and above all the the declaration on human rights from the united nations and then a, a european convention on human rights and so forth and in the atmosphere of the late 90s uh, in Europe, where I was studying in Germany, and then also in Australia, when I came back to take up a job at the University of Sydney in 2000, there seemed to be good grounds for thinking that we were moving into a firmly post-racial moment. Uh, the, the assimilationist period of the post-war period had passed. We were moving into an era of explicit multiculturalism. Of course, that had roots in the 70s and 80s but was really becoming much more accepted in the, wine, in the mainstream, certainly in Australia. Now that's 20 years ago nearly, right? And since then, one wonders whether we'd have to say the racial century 
is a century and a half or more. And it's really continued to frame politics after all. So that, that was a premature view on my part. Uh, you know, globalization has really unleashed uh, many, many demons and in, in various ways, you know, economically and culturally, and the two are related, of course. And, and one of them is intense anxiety in the form of nativism in many societies, which articulates itself in racist terms. Not a, but that can be broken down in various ways. We can get to that in the discussion. Uh, so, uh, and, and people's imaginations are once again, political imaginations are once again being articulated in, in terms of demographic anxiety, you know, which is articulated in race terms, obviously. Uh, so, you know, the, the politics, politics in many ways is reminiscent of, of, of the 1890s, uh, the 19, the interwar period, the 1920s and 30s. Not in every, not in every way, but in some ways. Yeah. But broadly speaking, that would imply that somehow the, what looked at first as a post-racial international order based on uh, the United Nations, the Human Rights Declaration, etc., um, carried the implicit racial hierarchy of a colonial modernity further, uh, which we now see breaking open increasingly? It, it can be seen in that way. The, you know, the optimistic view of the, of the 1950s was that you know, we had reached a, an equilibrium and a stability in the, you know, in the moment of, in the trajectory of decolonization on which there was general consensus, even if there was you know, resistance to that in France and UK, Britain and so forth. But you know, everybody saw where it was headed. You know, the winds of change uh, speech by a famous British prime minister and, and so forth. But in the, in the idea, of course, was that every nation is housed in its state. But you know, the closer we look, we realize that the way colonial boundaries were drawn and of course, the makeup of many European nation states like Belgium and so forth, is that these were highly heterogeneous entities uh, in, which were then beset by secessionist conflicts you know, after, the, after decolonization, when we think of Nigeria above all in the, in the, in the Biafra War of the late 60s, the, the splitting up of Pakistan in 1971 when East Pakistan becomes Bangladesh. I mean, these were conflicts in which millions of people died. And... and and, and showed that decolonization along the logic of homogeneous nation states contained its its own seed of negation. Uh, and it was one in, in which, you know, ethnos and demos were constantly confused. And these have been ripped apart again and again. And, you know, we see this ongoing in, 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 in parts of Africa as well today. But of course, this doesn't mean that we, we should return to the orientalist and colonialist view that you know these are inherently unstable places which require the firm hand of europe to guide them to modernity i mean it's the way europe tried to do that in the first half in the second half of the 20th the 19th century in the first half of the 20th century that led to these problems mahmoud mandani's got an important new book out on these issues which might be worth looking at Oh yeah, um, I have been reading him also in the same period that you wrote the initial racial century article. Um, and indeed he was like one of the uh, voices who also kind of paved new ways of thinking about the relation of, you know, the, the violence of the build-up of European nation-states in relation to colonial empires and ultimately the boomerang effect of these uh, 
forms of colonial violence uh, back in the world wars returning so to speak home um, um, and i wonder maybe that maybe you could also speak a little bit about the larger the kind of long durée of uh, you know if if partially you feel inclined to correct the hypothesis of a racial century i was still yet wondering sort of if 1850 sort of describes the rise of you know the pseudo scientific uh, sci scientific racism and its entry into the biopolitics of modernity in in sort of full scale what is your take on the significance of the concept of race in colonial modernity at large so if we think so of the may, 500 years yeah. if, if we think of the 500 years rather than of the, yeah. the 200 years 150 years scheme well i would be hesitant to push it back too far because the notion of race didn't animate the spanish and the the, the Portuguese in the same way it does now. When, when they, they're thinking of their empires, they're thinking in terms of Christendom. They're not Western civilization. I mean, we, we do know there is a literature about the way the Spanish articulated their notion of Christian purity, you know, which, was, which, were, which had uh, expunged uh, Jews and Muslims in the, in the late 15th century. And that, according to some people, that this is the origin of Nazi biological anti-Semitism and its emphasis on purity. Now, we can argue about this one way or the other, right? But we do know that the Spanish and the Portuguese were very intent on converting Indians to Christianity uh, in, the, in the Americas. You know, this doesn't sound like biological racism or, or any kind of racism uh, to me, at least as it was understood then in the second half of the 19th century. Of course, th there are hierarchies here and based on uh, based on notions of, you know, more traditional notions of paganness and so forth. I mean, the, and, and you know that the, the Spanish theologians had an intense conversation about whether uh, Indians could have rights or not, you know, whether they're fully human. And in the end, people like Las Casas and Vittoria argued along Thomist and Aristotelian lines that they they were fully human and entitled to property and other rights. They weren't entitled to rights in other ways, which allowed the uh, the Spanish to be there according to them and exploit them. But of course, these theologians also wanted to put limits on that exploitation. So you could say that there's a you know a tension in Western thinking uh, that originates in that time about how to treat non-Europeans and whether they're fully human or not. And of course, in a, in a broader intellectual history of race, this is a very important moment. But it's very different from the kind of racism that Pearson and, and, and Gobineau and others are talking about. Although there are continuities, of course, as always. I mean, Gobineau talked about, you know, yellow races, white races, and you had a sort of taxonomy uh, to which, you know, then moral attributes were then tied. Uh, and you'll always find traces of this earlier. Um, but, you know, historians are always arguing about continuity and change uh, and tracing a very strong line from the late 19th century to the Spanish, I think, is pushing it too far. I mean, there will be theorists like Patrick Wolfe, the recently deceased Australian uh, historian, who in, in a recent book came out just as he passed away a few years ago, sadly, you know, 
related it very much to the rise of capitalism in the in the in the 18th and 19th century and race played a very important role there in the way that indigenous peoples were categorized in relation to 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 enslaved people so the logic would be this the one drop rule which was very popular in america of course would would be attributed to or, or applied to african american slaves because you wanted to you wanted to increase their number because they were a valuable asset to exploit. Whereas Native Americans were dilutable, to use quotation marks, obviously, uh, in racial terms, they could be diluted because you wanted to get rid of them in order to take their land. So you can see how mutable the notion of race is, not really that scientific after all. It's very, very much tied to the, the economic imperatives that you know, incipient European capitalism uh, needed in in uh, extracting resources from and dominating these places. Yeah, to me, to me, it seems you know especially important in the context of our sort of say the, the discussion on who's universal, no? um, to get sort of the genealogy a bit uh, established. Um, so if I understand you're right also this means that somehow the let's call it the sorting mechanism of a concept like um still largely in a in a kind of um early capitalist and theological framework of a universalist presumably universalist concept such as the human um was implicitly working as a sorting mechanism by putting the humanity at least uh, through a variety of protocols into question or in fact, managing that very boundary of uh, a sociality based on a presumed universal. Um, I wonder, under how would you describe then the conditions which which really necessitated, perhaps, what were the what were the uh, the coordinates that necessitated the rise of race as uh, as the bedrock of 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 the biopolitics of the late nineteenth century? Like is race is race a kind of in your in your view is race itself a boomerang of the techniques of exploitation, um, or uh, how how would you describe its it, its emergence in the context of nineteenth century uh, imperialism? Okay, well there there are always multiple sources, and the you know, the rise of scientific positivism in the second half of the 19th century, you know, with the rise of science more generally, is an important metropolitan factor. So that, you know, intellectuals are starting to talk in these Darwinian terms uh, and human beings are starting to be categorized in, in hierarchies which are different from biblical ones. I mean, it's a, when we say there was little conception of race in the early modern period that doesn't mean that people didn't understand that there was vast heterogeneity in the human family they knew that from the bible which was what you know their their cultural reference point and you know the rise and fall of peoples and in fact their disappearance from history they were you know exterminated in the old testament for example was was a frame of reference for for christian europeans so that sense of struggle was and 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 genocide if you like although that's not a term they used was was part of the mental furniture of europeans 
that could easily be overlaid or imbued or saturated with racial language later in the 19th century. And there's no doubt that the racialist or you know, explicitly biological racist language uh, of the second half of the 19th century aided that. But I don't think it causes it. Because we, we know from, say, the foundation of the Second British Empire in the late 18th century, uh, so before the language of race in this term, that it was very easy for, for European powers to justify to themselves domination of other peoples along different lines, analogous lines, but different lines, because notions of hierarchy had always been there whether it's on the basis of progress, civilization, an approximation to humanity, which becomes more important the enlightenment, obviously, in the, in the late 18th century. But, you know, we have to understand as well how these empires worked in, on the ground. They weren't centrally coordinated from above. I mean, what happened was that trading companies, which were authorized or licensed by a monarch, would head out on the high seas and start trading uh, with... Uh, coastal in coastal entrepreneur prots in Africa and in Asia uh, with with other traders and 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 schlepped things back to Europe and they weren't conquering and dominating these societies here that that came somewhat later and that was all also done in a fit of absence of mind that is there would be some kind of conflict and then eventually maybe one of the navies would be called in to impose order and then you have the beginnings of a kind of an incipient colonial, formal colonial relationship. But, you know, all this happened without a theory. <laughs> In a sense, you know, uh, the justifications for people like Grotius, for example, would come later after, for example, the Dutch impounded, I think in this case, in, when he wrote his famous tracts, you know, Spanish, Spanish uh, goods that they'd seized on the, on the open sea. So it, it's important to understand, I think, that the theory doesn't drive the practice. It's often the other way around. You know, the, the, the theoreticians justify what they see occurring before them, you know. But notions of the right to dominate go back, you know, will go back to Roman sources ultimately and the idea of spreading civilization. Of course, the Spanish idea of civilization uh, the, from the 16th century will be different from the British one and the, the Protestant one. Uh, and they argued with each other all the time about whose empire is the most Christian and the most just, you know, a Catholic one or a Protestant one, one based on plunder, you know, the black legend as it's called, or one based on the notions of commerce, agriculture, you know, Locke. So the way it's articulated philosophically is terrifically important. And there's a cottage industry of people in Cambridge who write about you know, pour over these texts, you know, where Locke and Adam Smith and so forth, you know, how did they justify empire compared to Catholics, you know, thinkers in France and Portugal and Spain and so forth. Uh, but this all happened well before the language of race, in the early modern period at least. But to a certain extent, no, the, the, the discourse then of, of scientific racism as it emerged, um, in the late 19th century, then ultimately this this relationship sort of practice comes first. Then there's a theoretical uh, framework of ideas emerging around it to justify it, um, or there's a challenge to a certain form of rule, and then a theory is needed to uh, to re rehabilitate or cons consolidate that. 
form of uh, domination. But ultimately also, uh, I wanted to ask you about um, that particular kind of milieu of colonial discourse um, that you have done a great deal of work on in relation to um, the genocide um, uh, th that uh, later then came to be called the Holocaust. Huh? So the question of the colonial, the colonial origins, as it has been called by a colleague of yours, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, or what the <laughs> what the difference for you might also be between uh, the the long history of colonial genocide, knowing that this word will discuss the problems of that word of that term later. Um, but that's that's something I wanted to ask you to elaborate a bit on. Okay, I see where we're going. My answers will always be long-winded because I, you know, as I think on my feet, I always think of exceptions to generalizations and historians love to do that. Now, in, in finishing this book, uh, which you mentioned, The Problems of Genocide, which is out in January 2021, it became very apparent to me that, you know, one of the structuring principles in the debates about the legitimacy of empire, which included, of course, its violent excesses, was the enduring tension in metropolitan circles about whether an empire should be uh, ruthless or it should be humane. From the very beginning, from, from Las Casas, you saw an internal critique of European excesses. I mean, in, in the first case, it you had an internal Catholic one, then Las Casas was translated into, into English and Dutch and so forth, and it became a real staple of the, the Protestant critique of Catholic empires. Now, there are versions of this tension within any of these places, including Germany. So when Karl Peters is taking, uh, taking action in, in, um, in Africa, in these incipient colonies in the 1880s, I think. You had lots of domestic criticism in Germany about massacres, exploitation, and so forth. And this this happens again when uh, von Trotter issues these extermination orders in or order in 1904, 1905. So the, the, what I'm getting at is there's a tension between those that argue that empire should be a ruthless exaction and uh, imposition of European domination over, say, Africans in this case, because they are inferior and we have a right to dominate, okay? And it doesn't really matter what they think, right? That's on the one hand. On the other, you'll have, you know, often Christian people who are influenced by Christian missionaries and humanitarians will say, well, we, we have a right to an empire, but only if it's also in the interests of these people because they are backwards and we will help, we'll uplift them. There's a language of improvement, uplift, and also protection. So the way it worked out in Australia at the end of the 19th century is that as the indigenous population was decimated by many disease, but dislocation, massacres, and so forth, the you know humanitarians and ultimately the government passed legislation called Protection Acts, which then removed indigenous people from, you know, obviously valuable land for, for the settlers use and put them on settlements. Americans call it reservations, which were governed and ruled by what were called protectors, government employees who then protected these people. Now, it, it's a very ambiguous legacy because these were indeed safe spaces to some extent in which 
indigenous peoples could recover in, uh, demographically. Now, the missionaries often got in there as well. So you led to it just led to a wholesale conversion program, which some people call cultural genocide. But the ambiguity also lies in this: the the often German missionaries, who are brilliant philologists, as we know, translated the Bible into indigenous languages, and often these are now the only surviving remnant of those a record of those languages from the late nineteenth century. And people are now poring over these biblical texts as a as a source to you know revive these languages. So it's all very complicated. Now to get to your more general issue about the trajectory uh, of all this to the Holocaust, I mean one of the points of my book uh, is is a rethinking of the centrality of race in all this and focusing the attention on the question of security. So securitization processes in addition to racialization processes. In a sense, you take that for granted. Everything was racialized in the racial century. Right? Uh, people were categorized as peoples and as before, but now it was often given a sort of a racialist hard edge uh, in terms of biological hierarchies and also uh, uh, you know, imbued with Darwinistic notions of ability to survive in terms of competitive environment. What makes something genocidal, though, is whether a people is considered actively dangerous. Now, and it's when people are considered a security threat that governments act. Now, often these these perceptions are outlandish, as we know in the case of the Holocaust. I mean, it's a conspiracy uh, plot thinking. You know, Jews in Germany were in no way an objective threat to the German state, however conceptualized, right? But the Nazis believed they were, and lots of Germans did as well. But in other cases, there are colonial rebellions, and there is an actual security threat. What makes it genocidal, and this is where I come up with this notion of permanent security as opposed to sort of regular security, is when states or people who want to found states think that we need a permanent solution, an endlösung, if you like, to a situation. And so we'll undertake particularly ruthless measures to ensure that this problem doesn't occur again in the future. So there's a particular temporal structure. And what I see occurring in many imperial and colonial cases in the racial century, to go back to that periodization, is a sense of desperation on the part of colonial imperial elites when their empires, or at least in particular localities, are threatened and they undertake massacres in situ and deport entire peoples in order to make sure that there's permanent pacification. And what I argue is that that logic is taken to its extreme conclusion by the Nazis. But it's not a new logic. It's one that all empires have been engaged in and in all in all states, actually, for, for quite a long time. I mean, and I, I start the book in the 16th century with the Spanish and the Americas, and I finish you know, in the present day with, you know, drone warfare and aerial bombing. That The cover of the book is of a uh, a work of art by Murad Sube, the Yemeni artist who, who's taken, well, he's photographed a painting of a, of a family that was killed in an airstrike in Yemen uh, with Saudi, by Saudis, you know, who of course get their weapons from Britain and America. Uh, now, we'll get into why you know, these are forgotten victims, if you like, later in our conversation. Uh, but the notion of securitization, I think, needs to be brought to the fore in addition to racialization as the two ingredients which are necessary for 
for genocide. Look, the notion of racial, cultural and ethnic difference has been with humans for, forever. I mean, the Ottoman Empire was a very heterogeneous place and successful place until the late, well, the late 19th century. It's not as if Armenians weren't considered different in, in, nine, in 1800, but why in the late 19th century does the notion of an Armenian separateness become so threatening to Ottoman elites? And that's got to do with the destabilization of the Ottoman Empire through French, British and Russian penetration and the instrumentalization of the Armenian question for their own purposes. I mean, there are particular political logics that are going on there. It's not the notion of Christian-Muslim difference that caused the problem. Right. Yeah. I think that that is a really crucial point no, that I just like to emphasize, uh, which seems to me also, you know, the baseline of uh, your new book, no? the idea of um, what are the differentials used to depoliticize certain forms of violence and mask their political um, content, so to speak. Um, <clears throat> but it also seems to me that this permanent security as you just explained it or positioned it, um, am I right that this somehow also replaces an earlier distinction that I believe I uh, remember from reading your earlier work, which I back then found very enlightening um, stuff for thought for a long time, which was this kind of distinction between like imperial genocide based on, you know, the kind of the Darwinized struggle of, of uh, or claim to superiority, uh, um, you know, making making just like a natural law, no um, extinction occurring as extension of uh, of a kind of biologized uh, uh, natural history um, versus a kind of subaltern genocide, uh, something coming out of the the perceived or real threat. Um, either from a real subaltern position or from a merely imagined or a purely phantasmatic one, as in the case of the German shepherd of the Stürmer versus uh, um, the, the imagined Jewish, uh, Jewish conspiracy. In what way does this concept of the, of the permanent security amend these earlier uh, juxtaposition, which you've described as kind of uniquely working together in the case of the Nazi genocide? Yeah, that's very well rendered. The, uh, in a sense, adopt and continue this logic in the book by sort of tying the threads together. Just uh, to give a bit of genealogy of thinking for your listeners, I'll, I'll backtrack a bit. Uh, the notion of subaltern genocide, I, I took from Mamdani, actually, from his book, When Victims Become Killers, his book on the Rwandan genocide. And to backtrack one more step, if you go back to his book, uh, Citizen Subjects, his book on African politics and it, the, the legacy of colonialism, you know, which has been an enduring theme in his work and also is uh, in, in the current book that uh, just appeared. You know, he, he posits that the, the, the main poisonous legacy of colonialism in Africa was to denote peoples as either indigenous or non-indigenous, native or non-native. Uh, this was a, a function of the notion of indirect rule. You know, that is, uh, it's cheaper to run an empire if you don't have to station your own troops there, but you place local quote-unquote chiefs in charge. So the deals that were done in many empires, and not just in the British one, were that uh, uh, the, you know, 
the British or whatever colonial power would come through and they would say to uh, a local uh, elite, okay, we'll place you in charge of this area. Yeah, you are in, you know, you will collect the taxes, keep order, and we will then back you up with military power. And it's at this point that those that were considered part of the quote unquote polity uh, would be defined. And those that are Africans who are not, who are considered outsiders would be considered non-native aliens, if you like. And this trapped post-colonial African states in a, in a, uh, in a, in a cycle of um, potential violence because about, about in terms of competitions for the state that would now was now in their hands after decolonization. Now in Rwanda, we all know that the that the Hutu regarded the Tutsi as outsiders, as not Rwandans, but as immigrants from the north, and that was called the Hamitic myth, you know, which has biblical origins. Okay, and you know, some some Tutsis also believed in this. Apparently, is one reason that there's a a strong identification with Tutsis by uh, many Israelis and American Jewish organizations who regard them as, as the Jews of Africa. You know, it, we don't need to go into the details of this. But the, the, the key logic here is that, or structuring idea is that you have natives and non-natives and that natives have a right, according to this thinking, to expel dangerous outsiders you know, who are not native and imperil our way of life. Okay, and this is how the invasion of by the RPF in uh, the early 90s of of Rwanda was framed, and that then was used by extremist Hutus to as a trigger to exterminate all Tutsis. Okay, now it it Mamdani called his book "When Victims Are Killers." I think that's the title of the book because the the Hutus, although they were the majority, had been victims of Belgian and beforehand German and then Belgian colonialism because the Belgians had placed the Tutsis in charge in various ways. I mean, people argue about the details, but that's the basic logic. And since decolonization, I think in 63, there'd been tussles about, you know, who's going to run the state. Now, I I took this notion and and thought about how could this be applied to Europe? And this 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 dichotomy you posit in, in, in my work about imperial genocide, you know, which Europe, say European colonizers, though it's not always Europeans, come to a, uh, a colonial situation and exterminate those that they regard as threatening or inferior or what have you, is one logic. The other one is when the colonized, if you like, violently expel or murder the colonized, that you could call that an exter an, you know, a phenonian or Maybe if to be unfair and fun on, it's more Sartre's preface to the, the the wretched of the earth, which is much more is which is actually much more uh, intense in the, and emphatic in this sense, and as a as a redemptive act of reconstituting a a fully human uh, colonial subject by 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 expelling and murdering the 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 colonizer. Now this notion has been incredibly powerful when you think of the the Algerian case in the 1950s in uh, in in uh, uh, expelling the French, but also in Libya and expelling the the um, the Italians, and you know this notion of expelling the colonizer and then uh, effacing all aspects of uh, colonial legacy, you know, architecture, monuments, is uh, was very very important for Gaddafi apparently. Now leaving all that aside, what I saw that kind of energy in the Nazi understanding of what they were doing 
they regarded themselves as articulating, representing, you know, indigenous Germans. They used that language, you know, blood and soil, blut and boden. It's very nativist as well as racialist, but it, it inherits other vocabulary, which we can trace back. And, and, it, and they, regarded, they regarded Jews as a foreign people who, were, who had colonized Germany, less in terms of, demo, obviously not demographically, because they were a tiny minority, but by, by penetrating the elites of Germany, you know, journalism, academia, the free professions, and increasingly legal and political circles. And for, for this far-right uh, mentality, this had culminated in the Weimar Republic, the, the stab in the back legend this you know incredibly liberal democratic constitution uh, and and the defeat of the in the first world war recall that the that the series of strikes in 1917 and 1918 which paralyzed the the domestic scene in germany was interpret and and also liberal jewish newspapers which argued in favor of uh, uh, negotiations with the allies were interpreted by by far-right Germans, or many, many right-wing Germans, not just the extreme right, as, as, as kind of Jewish notions and Jewish moves. And of course, the Bolshevik Revolution was happening around the same time. So this was the geopolitics of it. Now, you don't need to assent to any of these ideas, you know, but, but you do need to recognize that many people thought in these terms, including Wilson, Churchill and others, they regarded the Bolshevik revolution as a Jewish revolution as well. This was mainstream liberal thinking. It wasn't confined to the right. Now, what I perceive in the Holocaust is a combination of imperial and subaltern, if you like, anti-imperial genocidal logics. The, the Nazi treatment of Slavs and in many cases in modalities Jews as well, Jews who are used in forced labor, for example, had clear colonial logics and precedents. And the and Nazis and other Germans spoke about it in those terms as well, but the but I don't think all aspects of the Holocaust can be explained in that way. I mean, the by these by these by these two concepts, you mean? No, just by an imperial one. So I I mean there have been yeah, there have been those that have pushed the imperial continuity too far. They've been saying you know the Holocaust is just a big colonial genocide. I I know. The maniacal cleansing aspect you, is not one you see in, you know, the unlimited aspect is not one you see in very regular colonial genocides. What you see in regular colonial genocides are much more limited actions. You know, if there's a if there's a colonial rebellion in a certain province, well, then you deal with it, right? But that doesn't mean you then exterminate all other peoples in your colony. I mean, you need to exploit these people to in plantations often to... Uh, uh, to keep the colony going. Uh, now, in settler colonies were slightly different because you needed the land and not their labor. You know, this is a very important distinction between settler colonialism and plantation colonialism. And you did have aspects of, you know, unlimited, localized unlimited extermination in Australia and in Americas in particular. But, you know, obviously in 19th century America, it's not colonial America anymore, obviously, but in 19th century America, there's no centrally coordinated plan to exterminate all Native Americans. You know, it's a highly decentralized place, et cetera. I mean, people need to stop re retrospectively imposing a high modernist idea, you know, Stalin, Hitler mode of, of uh, extermination back into colonial context. This is not how the states work. However, the, 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 this relentless 
intention to exterminate all Jews in Europe as potential security threats um, in, you know, in relate, you know, is a redemptive project. This is where Charles Friedner is right. This is a redemptive anti-Semitism. And I saw their logics or connections to an unintentional application, if you like, of a Fanonian notion of expulsion, regeneration, and so forth. Well, we see that, uh, we see that also in, in the current... We see that also in the current mobilization of the white genocide myth by white supremacists from Eastern Europe all the way to the US. And uh, they're standing here 200 meters in front of the Reichstag uh, with signs uh, written on white genocide. So this kind of the energy of this or the possibility of this portrayal as as nativist or as native um, and uh, the entire semantic field of this, the form of victimization turned into alleged uh, resistance is totally alive and kicking. Yes. Definitely, definitely. You know, the, when, when Mamdani is right here, although he's not written about Europe in this sense, but when populations or parts of populations start thinking themselves as an imperiled demographic entity, then you're entering very dangerous political territory. Uh, so we need to stop thinking of politics in terms of minorities, majorities, you know, and demographic anxiety, but in terms of citizenship rights and so forth. In in, in many ways, one of the better legacies of Rome and Greece, you know, uh, the 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 potential for genocidal civil war when politics is imagined in these ways is Syria, and uh, now the Syrian, you know, the Assad regime always regard and regards itself as protecting minorities. You know, it's a secular Baathist regime that, uh, you know, where, where there are large numbers of Christians in Syria, you know, ancient Christians, you know, speaking Aramaic and so forth, as well as the, the, uh, the sub-Shia sect that uh, his family represents and, you know, against a, a Sunni majority. But the, you know, the, the poisonous authoritarian, in fact, genocratic, uh, as in genocide legacy that, that it uh, results in is, is uh, there for, for C. You, there's a very important Syrian exiled intellectual in Berlin who, who's uh, someone worth talking to is Yassin El-Haj Saleh, uh, who's written extensively about this. And, you know, he's living in Berlin because he can't live in Syria, being persecuted by the by the Assad regime. And he theorizes the, the notion of, you know, genocratic, as in genocide, uh, regimes which construct populations in terms of dangerous minorities or majorities very well and very plausibly. So although all these writers that I'm talking about don't necessarily read each other, they are all pushing in the same direction analytically. So I, I think it's very important to bring them all into conversation together. Before I want to move a little bit more into the problems or problem of genocide or the concept of I, I just want to make one more leap on this, uh, something that I also did now, right now connected with something I, I think I remember from reading your, um, your book about the German intellectuals and the Nazi past, um, which is the kind of abyssal history of the connection of um, uh, Holocaust genocidal violence with the long history of um, anti-Semitism programs um, in relation to, you know, Christianity, Christian Europe, and and the lurking theme of sacrifice here. 
Now I'm mentioning this because we had a we had an exhibition here that just closed uh, a few weeks too early because of the partial lockdown uh, by Abi Warburg uh, with this kind of you know 500 years of constructing a kind of liberal secular art history based on the resurgence of antique paganism um, in the Renaissance art um, and in fact it's kind of you know woven into this is basically an argument one could infer. Um, and some scholars have done so more or less, um, showing also anti-Semitic violence, uh, you know, iconography of uh, um, the, uh, how is it called in English, the Hostian Frevel, the, um, the, uh, the uh, you know, when the, when the host is the, uh, oh, hmm, now I'm lacking the term, sorry. So uh, the Eucharist, right? Hmm. Oh, right, what, yeah, the host, that, the host that, is the, the host, yeah. Christ. So when, yeah. Yes, when when the host is desecrated, right? Yeah. Immediately, yeah. So so you find you find pictures of that sort of uh, emerging, like literally, like you know, in the from the 13th century onwards, yeah. wave it's after wave. Inscribed in no? cathedrals. Uh, yeah, exactly. There seems to be a sort of argument made in this kind of you know fragment that he, he never managed to complete of because of his early death that somehow claims that the grand civilizational tale of monotheisms consisting their virtue or their civilizational virtue consisting in having overcome blood sacrifice um, might not actually hold true for christianity uh, whatsoever so i was trying to think now whether this might have could be connected with the way you describe Sort of the post-war um, positioning, even up to the construction of the memorial 500 meters from here, um, where in the kind of identification with the victim is patterned after the identification with the crucified uh, um, Christ. Right. Um, so maybe that's something that you you could comment upon. Sure. Yeah, this takes me back to the book, uh, German Intellectuals in the Nazi Past, uh, which, uh, you know, I wrote effectively 14 years ago, and then it came out in 2007. Uh, an article associated with that was called Stigma and Sacrifice, which came out in the journal History and Memory also in 2007. And uh, the argument there was that the post-war German identification by what I call non-German Germans, who were the German equivalent of the non-Jewish Jew, that is the subject that identifies with universal values rather than particular values in the effort, you know, in a redemptive effort to remake the world. Uh, in the German case, we're talking, you know, about Habermas and, you know, German left liberals who were trying to Europeanize Germany because they, they identified the, you know, the disease of Nazism with particular German counter-enlightenment traditions. So they're trying to revive enlightenment traditions, which they saw as particularly Jewish ones as well. And Habermas wrote an important essay about this in the 1960s. And in one of his interviews or essays, he also talks about a, a particular artwork, uh, which I went and took a, a look at, where you have St. John the Baptist as the, and then Jesus as a lamb pointing up at the cross, and he's looking out at the audience. And it became, or the viewer, and it became clear to me that, you know, he was, you know, Habermas was art, asking Germans to identify with the sacrificial object here, which was obviously, it's a metaphor, but so it's not Christ, but the Jews are on the cross. We've murdered them. Right? We, we killed him or them. And we need to identify with them in order to be redeemed. 
And that's what I saw as a particular and now very successful memory project uh, that now, you know, that animates German elites. I mean, it was contested in the Historikerstreit because German conservatives wanted to keep identifying with particular German national traditions, sometimes nationalist, but mainly national, right? They obviously all rejected Nazism. Now, now you have this, this a, a consensus in the political class about the centrality of the Holocaust and Israel's uh, survival as the German Staatsräson. You know, that's been a, a quite a transformation in, in 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and, and it leads us to, uh, you know, a quite ugly debate in Germany this year, which is the one about Akhil Mbembe, uh, which the journal that I edit, uh, the Journal of Genocide Research, is having a forum on, should come out in early December. Now, what you see there is, uh, and this gets to your question about the continuing dialectic of of this identification, is you have now a a, a commissioner for the you know, Kampf gegen Antisemitismus. I think that's even the term they use, and Kampf, which is you know very loaded in Germany. Uh, so the the confronting antisemitism, a particular German commissioner, um, which whose job it is to go looking for instances of anti-Semitism. And the way it's defined using the uh, International Remembrance, Holocaust Remembrance Authority definition, it would include certain types of criticism of Israel. And in, and in Germany, that also includes BDS, the boycott, divestments and uh, sanctions movement from Palestinian civil society. Now, the way that's been played out is that this definition includes BDS, as anti-Semitic, because as it says, if, if I recall correctly, the word boycott reminds us of the worst periods of German history. So it's very Germanized. You know, I don't think Palestinians really care about whether that word reminds anyone of what happened in Germany, right? But they're worried about what's happening in Palestine. But it's a very German self-referential rendering of that issue. Because you spoke about the Staatsräson, no? Um... And of course, it comes by no surprise, sort of that you know the, that the Staatsraison was, of course, also built upon the uh, upon basically the consensus, the very fragile consensus around uh, the Friedensprozess, uh, the peace process. So um, that this kind of rift emerges between a Vergangenheitsbewältigung based on the centrality of the Holocaust and a kind of post-colonial consciousness that is not really has no food anyway really in this country um or or very uh deficiently so um this rift plus the other the older rifts within the german left um of course comes by no uh coincidence in the time that this consensus around the peace process is also falling apart or has been uh willingly put aside no? um i think that that context is important to kind of uh to picture yes i wanted to and and also coming close to uh the end already i wanted to just read one sentence i've kind of uh, written out of the um, introduction of the book that is currently in press that you have uh, uh shared with me earlier so i just wrote one sentence down that i just wanted you to unpack because it seems to me to contain quite a lot and perhaps the uh, something that uh, crucial about what is problematic about the concept of genocide uh, uh, and how you've come to place it um, in this book so uh, i'm reading 
the genocide keyword evolved from the early modern period to name or misname the phenomenon of permanent security that under that underlay the imperial violence intrinsic to the growth of your of the european state so this um sentence seems to you know do a lot of different things of course you have earlier introduced it in the sense of keyword in the post-war contexts etc but i i just wanted to maybe hear you a little bit on unpacking this and also understanding you know this kind of the the kind of anti-racism that we see at the moment which somehow eclipses in a way the the modern colonial period to a certain extent and we also see the entire reaction to that uh, in a way not totally unsimilar in some aspects as maybe even the, the late 19th early 20th century saw as a kind of foundational crisis in many disciplines concerning not racism but concerning sort of european reason no? the, the very definitions of rationalism the standard metaphysics all these things were then basically the reaction basically took the resistance back in no sort of turned say for instance life philosophy into a racialized uh, um, embrace of irrationalism etc so i just wanted to kind of position that in today's landscape this the larger sort of eclipse of colonial modernity and how a concept like genocide has functioned uh, within the late period of that and what's happening to it right now yeah so uh, there are a couple there's a lot going on in your questions as well i mean the basic argument is that the way genocide was defined in international law in 1948 you know which excluded cultural genocide it excluded political groups and it excluded population expulsion, you know, all deliberately, right, was was meant to ensure that it couldn't be used to prosecute any states and that states uh, for their normal security practices and assimilation practices and that states, uh, when they engaged in the repression of rebellions, could do so without uh, and, and co including colonial rebellions because we're still in the world of empires in the in the late 40s. Uh, could do so without any any fear of legal recourse. Uh, and I argue that that pattern uh, goes back to the late uh, 15th century when uh, the, the in the quote-unquote discovery of the Americas, you know, the Spanish engaged in this debate about the legitimacy of empire and, the, and violent excesses. Uh, we can see then patterns of the way the, what was called your scantium, the law of nations, defined the rights, in fact, non-right of resistance to empire. Okay, so what happened is when there, there was violent resistance to uh, imperial penetration, the the locals were defined as bandits, criminals, and so forth, and could be exterminated. And I see, I see that uh, genocide, the concept of genocide, is continuing that logic, because it. it it's described so narrowly, in other words, as a metaphor for the Holocaust, that's the archetype, that basically everything else is allowed, okay? The threshold of uh, what's illegal is so high that there's a lot that's legal underneath it. And that has been the enabling rhetorical and, and legal condition of possibility for the expansion of European power globally. 
Okay. So but international law has been a handmaiden of this, you know, and, and it, it's only regulated it for the benefit of anyone else on the margins. Now, other people have made this point, especially, quote unquote, the third world international law movement, TWAIL. I mean, they, a lot of people have made this point, but I've done this in relation to the, the genocide concept in particular. Now, uh, could you just could you just ask me again in your, the second part of your question uh, how this relates to the human sciences and 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 race? No, I mean I was just making this kind of detour via sort of the uh, you know the moment sort of the the moment of the foundational crisis of 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 modern or European uh, reason at the high point of imperialism sort of fell apart because of the many boomerang effects, no, uh, anthropological, um, but also internal, say, in physics, etc., and, and gave rise to this kind of, um, you know, the multiple monisms, some of them revolutionary, some of them uh, more spiritually reactionary, etc., which ultimately then become uh, uh, consolidated and racialized, right, so, such as in the Lebensphilosophie trajectory. Um, so I was just trying to think trying to think if we can see something similar happening in your mind structurally not not literally but in, um, in this current challenge to basically the, the challenge that you also hint here now which is like the violence intrinsic to the growth of the European state so there is basically um, there, there is something fundamental that is being challenged, right? Which is, uh, say, in the Black Lives Matter movement, in global anti-racism, but also through supported entirely through scholarship, right? Which which has now more or less established how the European nation states came out of an imperial project, are the product thereof, how humanism has been functioning as, you know, mostly to to modernize the concept of unfree matter rather than invention or civilizational rise of the free uh, subject, etc. So I just wonder where do you position these kind of challenges in the in the and its potentials or what alliance what alliances you envision are necessary? Yeah, okay, I, I, I see where you're coming from. Uh, I mean, the argument of the book is that the, the genocide concept is a problem, hence the notion, the, the title, the problems of genocide, because it tames that that critical move that or tendency that you're talking about. In, there was a critical potential there in a, in a particular definition of genocide, which included cultural genocide, which included population expulsion, which included the repression of political groups. In other words, a notion of genocide which approximated to the permanent security, you know, which is the, which is the, if you, the lot, the deep logic, structuring logic of any state project. Okay, um, the the right of self-preservation is something that, uh, you know, goes back to Roman sources and Western thought, and I'm sure you'll find correlates in non-Western thinking. You know, a state has a right to commit considerable crimes in. It's, it's in its striving for self-preservation when it's threatened. Of course, Carl Schmitt was a very important theorist of that kind of thinking, okay? You know, it's at moments of the state of exception. You know, it's when you're in, uh, when the state is imperiled. Now, there, that's what's led to the crushing of slave rebellions, the crushing of colonial uprisings, you know, moments when subaltern people 
exploited people, enslaved people, have striven for freedom, have been put down mostly successfully, you know, with this with this state and philosophical apparatus. I mean, you're more interested in the philosophical apparatus. You know, they're not human. They're committing atrocities. We are. We are. We represent humanity. You know, we the state and so forth. Now. We, we're seeing a symbolic rebellion, a slave rebellion, if you like, now in Black Lives Matter. And I mean that in the very best sense, because it's all about challenging the state, the modality of the state, arrogation of coercion, to use uh, the verbarian uh, vocabulary. Uh, it's the way people, uh, the uh, policing is done. But if, you, but if you read the Black Lives Matter manifestos more carefully, uh, and I think this is something that you're also getting at. They're making a much more consequential critique of the state as a whole, and also uh, chiming in with a decolonial, uh, an anti-colonial and decolonial uh, project. And and so they identify very very closely with Palestine, you know, which has led to a considerable hand wringing in Australia, which I observe closely, even from the US and the US, uh, in Jewish groups. Many, many liberal Jewish groups identify or want to identify very closely with Black Lives Matters. And going back to civil rights period, solidarity between Jews and blacks in a moment when in the 50s and 60s, when there was considerable anti-Semitism in, in, in the US, Jews were not allowed in country clubs, particularly universities and so forth. Uh, you know, that split apart in the, in the 70s and 80s. But there is this impulse to identification, but you know, more conservative or Zionist Jews are very ambivalent because they they do not like the anti-colonial, pro-Palestinian. It's not even a subtext. Explicit identifications of Black Lives Matters. So this is this is causing considerable hand wringing, and you're not going to see you're not going to see a decolonial move in the Biden administration. You know, it's going to go back to business as usual, and I see. Uh, on university campuses, you know, considerable enthusiasm for the project of decolonization, you know, decolonizing the, the the curriculum, you know, diversity. I mean, there is a liberal diversity ideology, which is quite hollow, you know, it leads to woke capitalism, but there's a more consequential one as well. And, and people are very serious about it and I welcome it and support it, obviously. Now there's, there is though, and this is where the pessimistic historian in me uh, comes to the fore. I see, you know, the powers of containment uh, of these impulses as, as seriously powerful, well, seriously well organized. And Trump may have lost the election, but not by that much. And 70 million voters were very enthusiastic about continuing, continuing, continuing the logics of settler colonialism. And the, you know, in the face of the impending climate catastrophe, which is something we haven't spoken about. And the same applies to Australia, even though we had these record bushfires last year, even though we have now record temperatures in Australia and the, the whole ecosystem is going to probably collapse in the next 30 years. So the I, I'm as much struck by the enduring hope for liberation as by the continuing commitment to the principles and practices of resource extraction that colonialism inaugurated and the state metaphysics that went with it. Uh, that that confront liberation. So we need to see these things in tension and dialectic, as I'm sure you agree. I mean, we all, you know, within, you know, particular ecosystems like university towns and so forth, 
it's easy to miss the considerable and enduring fascination, attraction, and desperate um, need to retain that which people think enables their standard of living to be continued. This, of course, is also uh, related to the nativism we spoke about, because people are considering politics in a zero-sum game. That you know, if these people come here from outside, they'll take away that which I have. You know. Absolutely. I think that roundup was a great uh, way to uh, to end also this conversation. I think we we have many things we could have uh, dived into deeper, and we probably just create, um, if you agree, another occasion to do so. And before March, uh, as we go on with the series, this was a conversation I had uh, with Dirk Moses uh, in the run up to the White West conference, um, hopefully taking place next March at Haus der Kulturen der Welt. Berlin. Um, a very warm uh, thank you to Dirk Moses. Um, and we look forward to uh, your book, um, which looks like a major achievement already, from what I could tell. It was mind-boggling to read the introduction. Thank you very much. Great to be with you.